This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in August. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to have some fun with philosophy on the program today. Uh, Some thought experiments mixed with uh, science fiction. Uh, Our guest is Charlie Heineman, who is professor of philosophy at uh, Utah State University. Uh, He was recently on uh, BBC4's uh, program Nature Bang, and uh, going through the following thought experiment, we've all seen this on uh, Star Trek and other uh, 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 science fiction uh, programs. Uh, When Captain Picard beams aboard the Enterprise, do the carbon atoms that make up his body make that leap? That that is, are the molecules compressed into a data stream, or is he basically replicated aboard the ship using his cellular coding, memories, and other neural impulses? Basically a blueprint of him. And uh, which him is him if the original (laughs) one is left? (laughs) Um, And there could be many hymns, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, so this is an interesting uh, thought experiment, which gets into the nature of the self. Yeah. So uh, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always fun to be here. So it's been a little while. Um, I, I tell people I want to find something interesting. I, I just go to your Facebook page. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, well, or, interesting. Or, or your web page, yeah. uh, Maniac. Maniac right? is my blog. Yeah, you'll yeah. find uh, hopefully interesting things, maybe good interesting, maybe weird interesting. <laughs> right. Uh, either way is fine. But, but interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the the program here, I want, before we get to the teleporter, uh, uh, yeah. which you've all seen, mm-hmm. if you've seen Star Trek and others, uh, this program, the BBC program, uh, brought up a, a um, an example from nature. Yes. The, the right. sponge. Tell us about sea this. Sea sponge. This is the first I had ever heard of it, and I was kind of surprised to be contacted by the BBC folks in connection to the, a story about a sea sponge, since I'm such an idiot about nature. But uh, So apparently there's a kind of sea sponge that you can push through a mesh so it'll be completely torn apart into its into into tiny little sea sponge parts and the sea sponge will reform itself so that somehow the parts will come together and and the sea sponge will serve well that's the question is it the same sea sponge after having been pushed through the mesh um, and that I just find miraculous and amazing that somehow these parts can get together and fit together in the right way yeah. to reconstitute itself. But you, you, uh, can, you can basically puree this. Yeah, apparently so. I don't know if there's <laughs> kind of a limit. That, you know, if you yeah, really, maybe not. Maybe if you totally mess it right. up, it can't come back. I but it'll know. it'll reform. Yeah, it'll reform. Interesting. Yeah. And that was just reason enough for these crazy BBC people to start thinking about teleporters and philosophy. I mean, the Nature Bang show I think is meant to uh, just put you into a space of ideas, thinking about nature, but then thinking about the connections to other ideas as well. So wonderfully creative show, yeah. really great producers. So your thought experiment, uh, mm-hmm. you suppose a, a man on Mars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Not Matt Damon, but, not Matt uh, Damon. but, but, but another person. <laughs> as you say, that this person doesn't have the potatoes, right? And, right, right, right. Thank um, you. And at uh, a certain point... Um, I guess runs out of food and runs out of whatever it right. needs to teleport back to back. Yeah, to and and my teleporter works a little bit differently than the ones that maybe you see in Star Trek. What you see in Star Trek is presumably the 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 body that's getting transported gets disintegrated like the sea sponge, right? And then the matter somehow gets shot through space and then it's reformed on the planet or on the ship or wherever the person's going. Um, it's interesting to ask whether the matter should matter. Right? Does it? Does it, the particular carbon molecules that make up my body, are those really essential to me, or can they be replaced by other carbon molecules that are qualitatively identical? We know that all the cells in our body 
get replaced on an average of seven years. It, it varies from cell to cell. Although I've also heard that the neurons don't get replaced in the same way. But I don't know whether anybody considers that as especially important for being the same person over time. That uh, what matters is not the particular matter, not just the carbon and the water and all the chemicals and so on, but the way that it's organized, the way that it's uh, structured in a kind of blueprint. So the way that my teleporter works is the, the, the guy on Mars steps into a teleporter. He just gets annihilated. All the, all the matter gets destroyed there. But uh, before that happens, a blueprint is taken of his body so that everybody can see exactly how his brain in particular, but the whole body as well, is organized. And that blueprint gets shipped back to Earth where out of some new carbon and new water and new materials, that gets constituted. And that, that's an important difference because mm. once you don't wed yourself to the matter, so to speak— then you face the problem of what happens when that blueprint gets multiply instantiated, right? You build several guys from Mars. Then, you know, then where does the original guy end up? Mm -hmm. uh, and the original guy could remain. That's right, right. So, right. One, so, so what if you have two? Exactly. One view of the story is I could walk into the teleporter, press the button, and then I'm dead. And then there's somebody who's a lot like me who appears on Mars and feels like they're me, loves my wife, loves my children just as much as I did, but they're not me. They're just a, a, like a twin, but impossibly close to me. And I'm just dead, right? And then, of course, the other view is that somehow I am able to make the trip so mm -hmm. that I press the button and the next thing that I experience is walking out on Earth and mm -hmm. having a good home-cooked meal. So for this thought experiment, are we setting aside the, the soul, the spirit? I mean, m many of us believe in the spirit, soul, right? Uh, which yeah. would be a whole yeah. different uh, variation here. It would be. It, it does complicate things considerably. I mean, so we're dealing with the mind-body problem. So the question is, what makes somebody conscious? What makes them aware of the universe? And immediately you have a split between the people who say science can explain it, just let us know about the brain. Maybe we'll pursue this with artificial intelligence and computer systems generally, and we'll we'll crack this problem. We'll figure out how a physical system can be conscious. Uh, other people say, no, forget it. Science can never answer this. This requires a kind of miraculous new substance, a uh, spiritual substance of some kind that is specifically able to house consciousness, but in some way that our science can't possibly grasp. Mm. Right. And so when we take that idea, that's called dualism, because two kinds of substances, the ordinary material kind and then the special consciousness kind. Um, when we bring that into the thought experiment, then it complicates things, right? Because now I press the button, my body is annihilated. I guess then my soul, my spirit, has to decide whether to go on to ascend to the ethereal realms or whatever it does after death, uh, or travel through space to hook up with a... a an appropriate host body that's now just recently appeared on Earth <laughs> and get matched up with that. So okay. That, yeah. So for this thought experiment, we'll, we'll set the dualism aside for now. Yeah, right. Um, um, so the continuity of consciousness uh, com right. comes in here. So, yeah. First of all, which one is the real right. you, right? Yeah. The one that's left on Mars, the one, or there could be several. Right. So this is this is the payoff of such a crazy thought experiment. I mean, it's fun to do sci-fi. It's fun to think through these fun examples and so on. But the reason the philosophers do this is because by exploring this kind of science fiction space, um, we learn what we're bringing into the 
uh, to the question. We, we learn about the conceptual baggage we're carrying with us. All right. So with the Mars teleporter, we're pulled in two directions. It seems plausible that when my body's annihilated on Mars, I'm gone. Right? But then it also seems plausible that this guy who's on Earth, who shows up on Earth, who has the same structure that I have had on Mars, there's no reason why that person shouldn't have an equally valid claim to being me. And so we're caught in this uh, dilemma, really. It seems like um, uh, the, the reason for thinking that I die on Mars is because then I don't have to answer the question of suppose two, suppose the blueprint gets shared to two spots and two of me are created, then which one am I? And that seems like impossible to determine. So it's safer to just say, okay, dead on Mars. Uh, but then there's no reason to think that the guy that shows up on Earth shouldn't be me, given that he's got everything that I've got when I'm back on Mars. Mm. Okay, so there's a there's a problem, right? When you can't answer the question, there's probably something wrong with the question. And so what I think the Mars teleporter experiment really shows is that, and this is this is a tough thing to wrap your head around, that there isn't a substantial self. That we we think of the self as something like a little golden nugget that either doesn't survive the trip or does survive the trip, right? There has to be a fact about where that nugget ends up. But if there isn't a nugget, if the self is a kind of fiction that we create, then the problem goes away. Then the right way to view the situation would be the view of an external observer who sees a body walk into the teleporter on Mars and disappear, and another body appear on Earth with all the memories and all of the behavioral features that the, the previous body had. And there's no problem. There's nothing to decide, right? The problem only emerges from that first-person perspective when you think that there has to be some fact to the matter as to whether I survived the trip or not. Mm. Get rid of the I, no problem. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is a big leap. Right? It is a big leap. It's be, a, because it's, I am I. I want to be me, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. We could have that, a lot. That of, is my perspective. And right? that's that's you might say the practical benefit of this kind of thought experiment is we have a lot of ego built up in ourselves, right? We care for ourselves. We plan for our futures. We do a lot for ourselves. And if we're less substantial than we thought we were, then it makes all of that practical activity uh, take on a different shade. Uh, maybe we're not as long-lasting as we think we are. Maybe we're not as significant as we think that we are. Um, maybe our our benef our our uh, efforts to maintain our futures are not really selfishly driven, but really they're morally driven. There's going to be somebody driving my car, owning my house, paying my mortgage, right? And I ought to do nice things for that person even if I'm not that person. Mm. <laughs> now, briefly, I want to bring in the uh, duality Right. Yes, sure. If if you believe in a soul and a spirit, mm -hmm. and that that is you, mm -hmm. uh, then that would solve this. It would. It would. Although at, experiment, at right? the cost of another mystery, right? Yeah. The, the special substance, the spirit or soul, is brought in precisely to be that thing that can be conscious, that can be a self. But we might ask, well, how if if carbon molecules, if brains, if computers, if they can't pull off this trick, how does this special substance carry off this? What What is this special substance? How does it house consciousness? How does it work? What are its mechanics? What is its nature? And typically at that point, the dualist will kind of throw up their arms and say, well, it's a mystery. How can I explain that? Well, it's easy to solve a mystery by bringing in another mystery, right? Mm -hmm. So the cost that you, you pay is that you haven't really provided an explanation. You've only fessed up to not having an explanation. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave that part to 
to religion. Good, I, I good. Guess that, that's... I, I, I don't need to be in any more trouble than I'm already in. <laughs> that's, uh, and, you know, and that is, I mean, that that, that gets us into religious questions. It but cer- we'll, certainly does. Um, we, um, we have an email, and you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to get your perspective on these um, interesting uh, thought experiments, philosophical uh, questions. We have a philosopher with us, mm-hmm. Charlie Heneman, who's a philosophy professor at USU. Uh, so this is Glenn out in the Uno Basin. He says, hello, when Jean-Luc Picard is beamed aboard or off of the Enterprise, quantum mechanics are at play. Where, uh, where is he beaming from? Where he is beaming from, his particles never leave. They're switched to resemble the empty space where he is going. His destination is where new particles are switched to match the Captain Picard from whence he came. Isn't that part of a quantum entanglement? Oh, my says goodness. Glenn. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, and and it just kind of by the side shows, I think, the value of science fiction is because it prompts all of us to start looking into how th- new things that we learn about the world might connect with some of the stories that we're telling about the world, like quantum mechanics and its application to, to Star Trek. Um yeah, quantum mechanics is often brought in to help explain uh, features of consciousness. I mean, globally, you might think, well, consciousness is one big mysterious thing. Quantum mechanics is one big mysterious thing. Maybe it's the same mystery underneath it all. And especially when several interpretations of quantum mechanics seem to employ consciousness at a very basic level, that that a, a natural system, a quantum system, isn't in a particular state until it's observed in a certain way, and then it collapses from possibility to actuality. And so if n- nature itself seems to require consciousness, maybe consciousness exists in some kind of quantum mysterious level. And that's, that's a fascinating idea. Um, I haven't yet seen anything put together that really uh, sort of... Uh, answers the questions that we'd, we'd like to, to ask. Uh, and it's also true that not all quantum uh, mechanics physicists agree on that, uh, the role of the observer in, in collapsing quantum states. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting uh, point, uh, Glenn. Thanks for that email. You can email us as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, Professor Hineman, uh, you give an example of a uh, poker club. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder if you could uh, tell us about that. This, this sure. Is, to, to illustrate the point that you brought up earlier, that we can have uh, this this science fiction example, which is not real life, at least not yet, mm-hmm. but this is real life, that yeah. our, our body, our cells change out, and we're a new person right. physically every, I don't know, how often. Yeah, so initially when I say something like there isn't a self, or the self is a is a kind of fiction that we form, that just seems radically impossible uh, because how, what's more real to me than me? Uh, but in fact, human beings are very prone to turn ideas into reality. The, the fancy philosophical term for this is reification or thingification. And so we might think about, uh, we, uh, we might talk about the nature of the American people. We might talk about the economy. We might uh, say, uh, talk about humanity generally and so on. But those are all abstract terms, and we treat them as things, even though when we really press to say, now, what is the economy really? Well, it's a bunch of people running around exchanging stuff, right? What is the spirit of the American people? Actually, I have no idea, but it has to do with a bunch of Americans running around saying and doing things. Um, 
And similarly, at a, at a more humble level, we might think about a poker club that exists over several decades, and its members completely change over that time. People uh, back out of the club or die, and they get replaced by other members of the poker club. And we still talk about that same poker club existing over 50 years. Well, what is that thing that we're talking about? Well, it's a set of associations. It's a set of relations, and the, all the players change, but the associations remain roughly the same. So when I say that the self is not real and it's a fiction, I'm saying it's sort of like a poker club, that what makes me me is a set of relations among my beliefs, my obligations, my relationships to others. That's another really important factor is that I don't, when we come to understanding selves and consciousness, we shouldn't just look inside the cranium. We should look at the social relationships we have to other people. Uh, and I think that is a vital part of what makes us both conscious and what makes us the same person over time. And this is why putting somebody in solitary confinement is a threat to their very identity. I don't think that those people can maintain their uh, their same consciousness, their same self, in isolation of other people. And indeed, all the psychology data seems to bear that out. Mm. So what does make up the consciousness then? Yeah. Part of what you're saying is relationships to other people. Relationships to other people and some kind of, uh, I'm tempted to say continuity function, though you would be right to say you're just using fancy words to mask your lack of understanding. That's right. <laughs> but it's going to be some kind of stable relationship among uh, beliefs and memories and some sense of continuity. Uh, John Locke, back in the 17th century, thought that continuity of memory is basically what determines the sameness of the person over time. So that I am the same person as I remember myself having been. And in the future, uh, I will own all the stuff that I remember having done. But all of the stuff that I don't remember having done is no longer part of me as a person. And that leads to interesting questions about moral responsibility. If I if I robbed somebody 10 years ago and forgot about it, should I be punished? If I don't remember it anymore, haven't you got the wrong guy? <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of what it is, it's going to be some very complex story about a dynamic process. Uh, sort of like if we wanted to say what is an economy, what is a poker club, we'd have to get into all of the specific uh, features that somehow maintain some continuous identity over time without there being some special nugget there that makes it the same. You, I'll quote you, you uh, at least paraphrase, you said it may be that the notion that I'm an enduring self over time is some sort of stubborn illusion. Yeah. But you go on to say a useful one. Very useful, right? I mean, it's uh, just like an economy. I mean, I think that's a very useful uh, illusion as well. Um, if somebody went hunting for an economy, they're not going to find anything. But it sure proves to be useful to talk about the economy and its ups and downs and, and the challenges that it faces and so on. And similarly with selves, I mean, there's, there's no way for you and I to form a relationship without pretending to believe in one another and to believe in ourselves uh, so that I have interests that I can look out for and I can share your interests and you can share mine and we can form a, a kind of society with one another. Um, and so it's, it's if we want to be successful species, right, successful as a species, it helps to believe in selves. Hmm. What about breaks in consciousness? We right. we have one every day, yeah. right? Sleep when we go to sleep is right. one. Right, 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 right. We put yeah. under for surgery. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the, we we do have breaks in consciousness. Yeah. What happens there? 
Great question. And there, of course, the more dramatic cases are cases where somebody uh, might quite suddenly completely forget themselves. They forget who they are entirely, a complete amnesia, and they don't recognize their wife, their children, their home. They don't know why they're there. Interestingly enough, they keep their language and they, they keep some skills like they know how to make coffee or something like that, but they've completely lost their identity as a self. And there are cases where that can last for many years, and then, again, equally suddenly, the old self can pop back. And suddenly uh, bridges are formed back to those old relations and those old recognitions and those old memories. Uh, very mysterious stuff. And, and it happens, of course, more commonly when we go to sleep, when we cease being conscious, setting aside dreams now, for example. Suppose you have a dreamless sleep or you're under some kind of uh, anesthetic or something like that. Um, we we apparently don't exist during those times. We certainly later on have no memories of having existed during those times. Um, and yet when the system comes back online, uh, gradually ourselves come back online as well. I mean, this happens pretty quickly when we wake up from sleep. But if you've ever been with somebody who's just come out of anesthetic, you you realize it might take a good half hour or an hour for all of their systems to come back online. And there, there are features of themselves that are reliable and recognizable and right. And there are features of themselves that are just kind of bizarre. They keep asking the same question over and over again. They can't quite you know, track the conversation. They can't quite uh, hold themselves together. But at some point we say, okay, now you're back. Now you've arrived. And, and the way we judge that is that their behavior accords with what we expect their behavior to be. And I think that goes more uh, towards showing that what we are is not just a, a self that either comes online or is offline, like a, like a toggle switch sort of thing, but a rather complex set of behaviors and memories and beliefs and interests that can be partially present uh, and then become wholly present. Hmm. Uh, let's uh, take a break. We're uh, talking with Charlie Heenemann. He's a philosophy professor at Utah State University. He was recently on BBC Four. Uh, Nature Bang, uh, talking about uh, consciousness, self, um, with this uh, thought experiment. Uh, what if you're transported from Mars to the Earth? Uh, sort of using a sort of 3D printer, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, I guess, going to be the next use, next application yeah, right. of 3D printer. <laughs> you can replicate yourself. Yes. We'll, well no then, longer have to use jet planes. We'll yeah. Just, we'll just you know, beam ourselves. Uh, so the, who's the real self? Is the one left on Mars or the one on Earth? And that's the thought experiment we're uh, talking about. We'll talk a little bit more about this following break. And then I want to get into um, uh, a, a recent uh, essay. Which is available on Amazon, by the way. You can uh, these these essays are available for for a dollar a piece. Yeah, uh, right. Very affordable. My life as a non-playing character: reflections on being a video game character. <laughs> some some related topics. I Very think. related. Yes. Um, maybe get into if we have time. Uh, Thomas Hobbes. Sure. And an interesting essay about uh, London, sixteen forty one. Some interesting things to talk about. More following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're jumping into philosophy on the program today, as we do periodically, uh, with Charlie Heenemann, a USU philosophy professor. Um, and uh, we have been talking about this interesting thought experiment. Uh, what is me? If you mm -hmm. replicate me, mm -hmm. which one is me, right? right so it right, gets yeah. into self and, and identity. Um, so before we went out of the air, Professor Heenemann, you were talking about a 
a movie that you'd seen that's called Moon, apparently. Yeah, yeah, and I should, uh, I should, uh, I guess, warn everybody a spoiler alert uh, that this is a, a suspenseful movie, and it takes you a while to get to the conclusion. Uh, but I'm going to wreck it. Um, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful independent movie about a guy living solo on the moon, and he gradually discovers that uh, he hasn't just been there for his lifetime but he's been replicated many times that each time he's, oh, maybe fallen victim to an accident or something like that or a disease or something. And, uh, and his body has been formed anew. And then presumably there's been some kind of memory wipe. So he doesn't remember his previous life. Uh, but he discovers this, you know, cache of former hymns, <laughs> former bodies that he's used. Um, but, uh, the, the movie, although it's, as I recall, mostly kind of silent is able to kind of, uh, uh, encourage these questions about, well, have I been all of those people? I don't remember having been all of those people. Who am I? What am I? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a marvelous movie. Yeah, very thoughtful. Uh, again, it gets us into the, the value of science fiction. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, you can explore these while yeah. enjoying a story. Yeah. Um, so I love sci-fi, right? Yeah, my favorite sci-fi author, uh, Neil Stevenson, uh, kind of uh, shuns the, the term sci-fi and calls it speculative fiction, which he defines as fiction that takes ideas seriously. And I think that's right. It doesn't Sci-fi as a genre or whatever uh, doesn't have to involve spaceships and laser guns and robots and all these, this stuff. It just has to take ideas seriously and, and start to ask counterfactual questions. What if this had never happened? Or what if this had happened? Or what if we had been able to do that? How would our lives be different? And how would you know human relations be different? Yeah. And so it's really the very same territory as philosophy to try to figure out the important stuff in life by asking a lot of what if questions. Uh, another value in sci-fi that I uh, that I really uh, value is uh, you can you can make it more exotic, mm-hmm. but still treat issues on Earth, right? Yeah, you can you can through allegory. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, through allegory or even just through. Um, uh, just adding one extra element. So Neil Stevenson, again, uh, wrote a book called Anathem, uh, which is a book that kind of is about medieval monasteries in a certain way. But what if the medieval monasteries, instead of being uh, based upon a religion, had been based upon science and mathematics? And so that the, the monks going into these monasteries uh, simply worked on improving their knowledge of nature and the world. What, what would society be like? Uh, and there's other factors going into that novel as well, but it's a fascinating kind of exploration of that mm. that what if scenario. You know, I've discussed before. You've you've brought this up, and I agreed uh, there should be a science fiction class. Yeah, right? yeah, and I've I've sketched it out a hundred times, uh, sci-fi and philosophy, <laughs> and uh, I get busy teaching other stuff. But I I hope soon to be able to offer a course like that. Yeah. So uh, this sort of thought experiment we've been talking about to re- mm-hmm. replicate yourself from Mars. Uh, what are a couple other things that you maybe would include in a course like that? Yeah. So uh, one one course I have sketched out has been philosophy and computer games. And you'd mentioned this, uh, my life as a non-player character, my life as an NPC. Um, I'm fascinated by the, the ways in which humans can insert themselves into fantastic realms. And computer, uh, obviously, you can do this with books, with comic books, with just a lazy afternoon with nothing else to do. But computers make it, can make it so much more vivid in certain ways um, uh, to inhabit this magical realm where you can run around with a sword and kill monsters and so on. Um, and the characters that you develop virtually 
can be very interesting characters and can say a lot about you. And there are some computer games that really uh, grip you, I think, as a player in the same way that a great novel can grip you as a player. So I'm thinking in particular of there's a game called Mass Effect where you play through the series, very exciting game, uh, but in the end you have to make a decision about basically the fate of humanity, about whether uh, to let human beings uh, run their course, which in this game tends to be a course of self-destruction, or whether to uh, turn the governing of the universe over to uh, another species called the Reapers, right? or whether to form some kind of symbiotic relationship between human beings and machines. Uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, as I would say, a fascinating uh, uh, play out of Hegel's philosophy and views of human beings and various tensions within history and the ways that those tensions get resolved in something that we identify as progress. Um, and so, uh, and I've gotten carried away that I forgot your original question, but these, <laughs> these, are, these are some of the things that, that I think are interesting to yeah. explore. Uh, the, the ways that we create fictional realities and can read back our real realities from what we do in those fictional ones. Yeah. And that's interesting. I want to follow up with that. That's that's interesting. It could tell you something about yourself, perhaps, right? Yes, right. Because it's, uh, you know, if you're inhabiting that world and you're a character, yes. you're going to make decisions. Yeah. I mean, you are you, but you're but you're inhabiting yeah. a different reality. So yeah. um, maybe, I don't know, yeah. learn something about yourself? Yeah, well, so one of my favorite things to do is when I'm playing these games, uh, Skyrim, Minecraft, Mass Effect, is to spend a little bit of time thinking, all right, suppose I really were that character in that game. Steve is, is the guy in Minecraft or, or uh, the, the Dragonborn in Skyrim and so on. Uh, and suppose that I were this character in this video game and I were to do philosophy in that virtual world. What kind of metaphysics would I come up with? What kind of morality would I come up with? And once I try to figure out that, and I did that in another uh, book called uh, How to Play the Game, which is all about Minecraft. And the, the basic idea is the guy in Minecraft starts doing philosophy in the Minecraft world. Um, once you do that, you, you begin to start asking these questions about how, what world you're living in and how you're making metaphysical claims and metaphysical assumptions. Because it's, it's, it's one thing to look at the goofy computer character making all these mistakes about the nature of reality, understandable mistakes given the world that they're living in, and then to look back at your own situation. That's another thing. And, and the uh, assumptions that you're making are probably the mistakes that you're making as you try to uh, figure out what, what is metaphysically going on. And uh, this is very close to the whole world of, uh, you know, self-help, self-improvement books, right? You're, yeah. you're envisioning a different world in which you yeah. are making better decisions, right? Yeah. And that, in a way, ties back to the kind of the non-unitary nature of the self, what we were talking about earlier about the, the self being a kind of illusion, um, that we have a lot of uh, distinct elements that compose our lives, and we often assume one kind of given story about how those elements all fit together. But there's always, if, uh, there's always different ways that you can fit the pieces of the puzzle together, right? And somebody might move from a situation where they see themselves as, as deservingly unfortunate, that they're living a bad life and they deserve to lead, lead a bad life and so on. But by reconfiguring the pieces of the puzzle, they can find a new story to tell, a new way of construing the situation that can be helpful and healing. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm, uh, I'm envisioning this, uh, I don't know, Minecraft or whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and a character who 
becomes a philosopher, right? Yes. In the middle of that. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's nice to imagine. It was, it was fun to write, and it was one way to justify uh, the time that I spent playing video games. Yeah, yeah there, <laughs> there you go, which is a, a perk of your job. Um, we have another email. This is from Lindy. Hmm. Lindy says, hi, UPR. Love the guest and topic today. Just wanted to weigh in because I suppose I'm in the Jaron Lanier camp, uh-huh. yeah. uh, where we know that consciousness exists because we all experience it and mostly describe a similar shared perception. To say that contemplating the answer to the deconstruction of matter question is asking the wrong question is intolerant of ambiguity. Mm. We don't have to understand it for it to be real. And the number of questions we can't answer will always be greater than the number we can answer. The ego comes in thinking we can solve everything. I agree that substituting a soul is an unnecessary introduction of further mystery. But simply saying that the mystery of consciousness that does exist is not worth contemplating feels like the same kind of egoism that you're trying to eliminate. I think there are better ways of getting to the heart of how the ego, fiction of self, interrupts our ability to contemplate larger questions. That's all, says Lindy. Everything else has been stimulating and agreeable to my particular personal self. <laughs> Thank you uh, for the head trip on my way to work. That's Lindy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, Jaron Lanier is this fascinating guy uh, worth looking into. Uh, he, he uh, by most accounts, is the guy who first coined the term virtual reality and was very much in the cutting edge of Silicon Valley as they were creating uh, uh, systems that supported virtual reality. But he's also this kind of crazy and amazingly accomplished, not crazy, I shouldn't say crazy, I mean crazy in the sense of unpredictable um, uh, musician. And he plays a, a million different kinds of forgotten instruments and is always thinking out of the box, just a wonderful intellect. And so I didn't know his views that Lindy shared about consciousness, but it, it certainly is in keeping with what I do know about Lanier, um, that you've got a fundamental mystery here. And, and there are many philosophers that take this view as well. Galen Strawson is a very prominent one, that to deny the reality of consciousness is like the biggest mistake ever. I mean, it's, it's, it's as near to us as our own teeth, that, that we are conscious, that we are alive. That we, and... You shouldn't adopt any explanation that takes away from that basic phenomenon of being consciousness, right? Um, you don't want to underplay the fact of being conscious. Um, so if I said that being conscious was just a matter of neurons spiking with a certain frequency, uh, you might say, I don't see the connection between neurons spiking at a certain frequency and hearing a lovely poem or seeing a beautiful color or, or, uh, or weeping over the tragedy of Mahler's Ninth Symphony or something like that. And you would be right to do so. I mean, any explanation has to do justice to what it's explaining. And there are many people that think there is no explanation we can put together that will do justice to the phenomena of consciousness. Hmm. Uh, thanks, Lindy. Appreciate that. And uh, we have uh, Charlie Heineman, philosophy professor at Utah State University, uh, with us uh, for another 10 or 15 minutes. Let's take another break. When we come back, I, I will do as I promised. We'll get into non-playing characters and okay. the, the game Skyrim. <laughs> uh, more following this. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is philosophy professor Charlie Heneman. He's professor of philosophy at Utah State University. You can find him at uh, heinemaniac.com, mm-hmm. I think yes. it is. Yeah, yep, that's me. Um, and uh, you can find this here. You can find it at Amazon.well. Uh, 
Amazon.com as well. So uh, Stacks of Books is the yeah. series, right? Yeah. So um, uh, at some point I thought, well, I, I'm exploring all these different things. Some some of what I do, most of what I do ends up going into scholarly articles and essays. And other things are just sort of brainstorms or ideas that I find interesting. And um, there isn't, at least I haven't found a, a really great venue for sharing those things other than, say, a blog. Uh, but But some of them were kind of lengthy enough that I thought I could make available on Amazon. And so I'm just calling these stacks of books with the idea being I read all these stacks of books and once in a while come up with an idea that I think is interesting. And so I can write it up and make it available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can find these on, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, so My Life as an NPC, Reflections on Being a Video Game Character. We're talking about non-playing characters. Right, so right. tell us about this. So a lot of that is the same as the idea we were mentioning earlier about what it, what it is to live in a virtual world and whether that's really relevantly different from living in a non-virtual world uh, because you still face the sim- same, not the same, but the same kinds of tensions and problems and, and difficulties and obstacles and so on. So the whole idea of, of my life as an NPC is just uh, giving a, a, a kind of diary report of somebody who's living in the, in the Skyrim world uh, and their companion, who is a non-playing, non-playable character named Lydia, their companion gradually starts to show signs of consciousness. She's going off script. She's wondering what happens when the the main character, me, goes to sleep. Um, And uh, there are just little signs that come and go of her becoming conscious and coming to deal with the nature of her own reality. And that, of course, causes the the main character to start to wonder what kind of reality he's living in. Um, And so it was just a fun kind of idea to try to to work through philosophically, kind of existential and also just fun as well, uh, given the setting. But it it also leads to an interesting philosophical question that has been raised over years, which is um, if we go with the idea that consciousness is something that can be materially produced by a computer system or a brain, something like that, uh, then it seems possible we should be able to create artificial consciousness. Um, and we could create many artificial consciousnesses, as many as we had uh, uh, computer equipment for, basically, computer resources for. Uh, okay, so here's, here's the interesting idea. The universe is really big. The universe is really old. Probabilistically, there have been many, many, many advanced civilizations. At least some of those advanced civilizations must have developed computers and supercomputers and the capacity for computer intelligence, artificial intelligence, and creating artificially intelligent characters. Okay. Some of those very advanced societies maybe have created billions or trillions of artificially conscious entities. Okay, run the numbers all together, uh, and there are likely many, many more artificially conscious entities than there have been physically actual conscious entities. And so the conclusion of the argument is that you probably are an artificial intelligence <laughs> living in a simulated reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is an argument put forward by Nick Bostrom uh, called Bostrom Simulation Hypothesis. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating idea. Yeah, that's uh, that, that makes me uncomfortable. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> to, to think that. Uh, um, there, there's, a, there's another part of this that's interesting to me. Um, so role-playing games, right? You mm-hmm. inhabit this character. Right. Um, 
and then the non-playable characters are, I guess, there for you, right? There, there's yeah, long for it, it is interesting. What if the non-playable character gets consciousness as well? Yeah, and yet so you they, don't inhabit that character. Exactly, they become a genuine other in a certain mm-hmm. sense. I mean, yeah. that's that's also the fun of these role-playing games is that you uh, you inhabit another life, you inhabit this role, right? And it might cause you to uh, reflect on all the different roles that you play in real life, the role as a father, the role as a, as a husband or a wife, the role as, as an employee, the role as a radio host, mm-hmm. right? That you kind of step into these roles and that gives you certain boundaries, things that you have to do, things you can do, things you can't do, and that, that kind of thing, um, just as you do in, in a simulated reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that makes a simulated reality a bit less simulated in a certain yeah, sense. Yeah. Yeah. But this, uh, you're stepping into a role, that's part of the fun, right? Or, or sure. the main part of the fun. There's, right. uh, what was it, Second Life? Right? Yeah, the, right. Yeah. I don't know what ever happened to Second Life, but kinda, you, were, yeah, you, were, you were not inhabiting a different role per se. You were yourself right. in a different yeah. life, and maybe that was less fun. I don't know. Yeah, this is also a question that I pursue in the Minecraft book is when, when you step into this Second Life or the simulated role, a lot of some of the attraction is you can do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do in life, and some of that is just oh, I can swing a sword, oh, I can jump thirty feet or whatever. Uh, but some of it is oh, I can go rob people and and run away from the police. Um, is is that it's fun to do? Obviously, it's fun to kind of explore the moral space. But uh, I do think it can be asked whether we're morally culpable for the decisions that we make in simulated realities, right? Uh, because even though you're not really hurting anybody, obviously, still you're intending to do harm, especially the more immersed you are in the game. And this is this is what leads to practical real world concerns about video games and whether they do or do not uh, uh, weaken people's moral responsibility, right? mm-hmm. especially in things like Grand Theft Auto, where, where you're really doing some nasty, nasty stuff. Does does that this is an empirical question. Does that kind of lower the resistance to doing nasty things in real life. Yeah, and that's, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of studies on that, but it's, yeah. it is a concern, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it is a concern. It does mm-hmm. not seem to be a, a single dominant sort of uh, factor. But. We have another email. This is Leon in Ogden. He says, great show. Question, plank statement on consciousness. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness, end quote. Leon goes on to say, how does this relate to today's subject? I don't know if this question is arriving too late in the program for comment. Not too late, Leon. Um, But what do you think about his seeming assertion that consciousness is the real basis for for reality and everything else follows? That's Leon and Arkham. That's fantastic. And that's another view that we haven't mentioned so far. It's it's called, I talked about materialism, right? You are your brain and dualism, that there's this special stuff that does the consciousness stuff. Um, but then there's also a view called idealism, uh, which would say that, con- like, like Leon said, the Planck said, uh, that consciousness is what is fundamental. And it's indeed in consciousness that we come to know of the existence of matter, that we come to understand the physical world. And perhaps it's, it's not uh, consciousness that is in some sense an illusion created by matter, but matter is an illusion created by consciousness. Uh, meaning that uh, really what we are are conscious beings and everything that we know of is, of course, through our experience and we construct our view of the world out of that experience. 
Uh, and this was a very compelling, this, this has had many defenders throughout history of philosophy, but was particularly prominent uh, in Europe in the uh, 20s um, and 30s, so Monk, Planck's era, but also before him, another German physicist named Ernst Mach, after which we have the, the speed, Mach speed, mm-hmm. Mach 1, Mach 2, that, that guy. Uh, he also defended at, at great length a kind of idealism. And William James as well defended a, a kind of idealism that it's really the universe is a product of consciousness and consciousness is, is not a product of the universe. Mm. Um, that it's, it's a wonderfully rich and interesting view and in terms of philosophical problems, I don't see any philosophical problems with it. I mean, it really handily explains everything um, because by definition, it can explain everything we have experience of. Mm. But people seem very, very reluctant to give up on matter mm. and become idealists. Mm. I'm, not, I'm never exactly sure why that is. Uh, it, it does seem kind of spacey, I guess, um, but it is a remarkably coherent view of looking at things. We just have uh, two or three minutes left. I want to, um, I think this fits in well uh, in the flow of the conversation here. You recently presented a paper, mm-hmm. uh, Hobbes and Robots. Yeah, right. <laughs> so yes. when Hobbes, uh, my understanding from you is that Hobbes was right. about matter, right? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. And this is, of course, we should clarify Thomas Hobbes, not the tall tiger character in Calvin and Hobbes, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Thomas Hobbes lived in the 17th century. And uh, at the 17th century, Europeans started to get really kind of crazy for robots, uh, uh, fountains, uh, mechanical birds, mechanical uh, flute players, the mechanical riding boy that was later in the 18th century. Uh, so, so the idea of what you can explain, what you can do, what you can build with mechanisms was at the same time an exploration of what human beings are, what kind of mechanisms human beings are, and the way that they fit into society like uh, cogs into a machine. Uh, and Thomas Hobbes was at the early end of that. And while later thinkers used robots and machines as a way to talk about how our lives are determined, we have no freedom, we're, de- we're you know, forced to do what we do, Hobbes, on, on the contrary, looked at machines as wonderfully self, self-governed. I mean, they are automata, meaning they're self-powered. And he thought that that is the key for understanding human autonomy, meaning self-directing it self-directedness, that if I get to live the life that, uh, that my own system generates or pushes me toward, then I have freedom. And so he actually thought comparing human beings to robots was a good thing and, and not a demeaning thing at all. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. which... which uh uh, would be a view that uh, many would disagree with, right? Yeah, now we say, oh, don't make us robots. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, at the same time, we always ask, what about if we have artificial intelligence? What about if we have robots? And they start to follow their own agenda. And then we think, okay, now they're real people in a certain sense. They're a real force to contend with. And that might kind of connect with Hobbes's earlier idea that, that once they get their own agenda— now they're part of our community for good or for ill, right? And and Hobbes wanted to explain what it is to be part of a community, and it, mm. it's having that kind of drive, that kind mm. having your own agenda. Yeah, uh, it seems like our fears go go out ahead of that. You know, we we yeah. we don't conjure up a benign 
uh, consciousness, we we conjure up Hal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is that is the temptation, and and uh, I don't know whether that says more about our own reflections of ourselves. I mean, because typically, of course, these robots are more powerful than we are. They're stronger. They're smarter. They have access to more information. And we think, well, heck, if I had that kind of power, nothing would stop me from doing all the kinds of nasty things that, what, that I secretly want to do. Right, right. Uh, and so, yeah, we tend to look uh, on the dark side. But it, wouldn't it be marvelous? I, I don't know that anybody's done this. A sci-fi story where we create these artificially intelligent beings, these great robots, very strong, very smart. And they're also hugely more compassionate than the rest of us. Mm. And they care for us. Yeah. That would be, a, I guess, not, maybe not a very exciting story, but it would, would be compelling at, at various levels. Maybe that's the key. Maybe that's why it hasn't been written. It, maybe so. Maybe it wouldn't sell very, yeah. very well, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, let's hope that, that if that future is coming, let's hope that that's well, what let's, it is. Let's right? hope for that one. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion. You can find much more. It's interesting at uh, Hinemaniac.com. Thank you, Tom. Um, Charlie Heneman is a professor of philosophy at Utah State University, and... Uh, We uh, thank you for joining the program today. Thanks for listening.